genre. Hello and welcome to Lord of the Rings Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze the movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, one side-eyed glance at a time. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm Norman Mitchell. I'm Cassandra Fredrickson. And joining us again this week is Zachary Luna of this Geek week, by Night. Today. Hey guys. Yes. Thanks for having me. Well, joining us again this week. Again oh, this week. It's all one week. It's I don't know. Week. It's been a day. It's been a long day. <laughs> it has. It's been a very long day. This is our 10th recording. It's been a really long day. <laughs> Uh, all for so, you guys. Yeah, love it. Yes. Uh, here we are so, in another minute of this yeah. film. Yeah. Minute 95, to be exact, mm-hmm. which starts with Aragorn staring at Boromir and ends with Aragorn moving to place Narsil back on its pedestal. Yes. Because Boromir was very disrespectful. Super disrespectful. Oh, my God. Um, but uh, a couple of little things uh, for context in making this movie and how the scene came to be. Mm-hmm. This scene kind of comes to be because Peter really hated the idea of Aragorn carrying around a broken sword. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. He thought it was kind of silly, so he came up with this... He, he kind of came up with this idea for, like, the, the altar for Narsil to sit on. Mm-hmm. It's a great uh, idea. Which is... Yeah. It is really cool. This statue was designed by Alan Lee, the statue holding the shield that the sword sits on, mm-hmm. and was sculpted by uh, Natalie Stanforth, is the name of the woman who made the statue. Oh, wow. Sweet. She works for Weta, I uh, assume. I, I think so. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. If I she didn't before, she probably assume. does now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and the sword itself, Narsil, was designed by John Howe, where virtually Ooh. everything else in this scene was designed Alan by Alan Lee. Lee. Yeah. Uh, but John Howe was the uh, was that guy. I love it. I believe he does not, John Howe did most of the did the design for most of the weapons, and most then Alan Lee did a lot of the Elven stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a couple other Weta people like uh, Daniel Falconer and a couple others who do some of the main swords. But yeah, I think I, I think generally they let um, Alan do a lot more Elven architecture, and they let John do a lot more of the like physical blades and things like that because he loves it. He loves them all. Um. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I love that sword. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of uh, shade being thrown in this scene. Oh my god, so, so much, so much shade. shade, so much. And like shade. Boromir, I've always taken this scene as Boromir being really unsure who Aragorn is, and thinking that he. I I'm fairly certain that the way this is framed, Boromir suspects there's much more to Aragorn than meets the eye. Otherwise, yeah. he wouldn't be hanging out here. Yeah. Right. So before right, right. he steps up to the pedestal, he looks at Aragorn almost for like approval or to see if he'll say anything. Right. Before he yeah. takes those steps up. Right. And when he cuts himself on the sword, he looks back again because he wants to see if what he's doing will get a reaction. I don't necessarily right. think that Bormir is meaning to be disrespectful here mm-hmm. necessarily. He's testing the waters to see who Aragorn is. It's kind of like a toddler or like a like a pet. Like you're like no, and then <laughs> like it kind of looks reaching. at you. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> but Aragorn's it's reaching not even for reacting. Your cup of tea. For yeah, <laughs> Aragorn doesn't even move until after Boromir leaves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he doesn't. Okay. He's not betraying anything. So if yeah. you wander into a, a dark 
hallway sure. and encounter someone you've never met before in a place you've never been before. Yep. And they don't really say who they are. And all they do is stare at you mm-hmm. while you pick up like this random, like, let's say it's like a vase or something. Well, like, this is like watching it walking into a museum and like picking the Mona Lisa up off the wall and looking at it and then like putting it back. Yeah, I and guess it falls, so. Like, <laughs> and then dropping I mean, it. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then you just hurry away. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Uh, I won't get in trouble and for that. And is Aragorn is like the museum docent in this metaphor? Yeah. Or like- <laughs> yeah. But he just doesn't do anything. He, yeah. he doesn't be like, hey, don't do that. He's just, he just stands there and it's just like, really? Well, I yeah. think because this scene also kind of mirrors his introduction in mm-hmm. Bree, where he just kind of sits in the corner and broods and you know, yeah. his yeah. eyes yeah. and stuff. He watches. But- He's a watcher. Yeah, so he's a ranger. What he's he does a, is watch people. Yeah. He tracks people. <laughs> he studies them. Yeah, I mean, I I always took this scene a little bit more as um, he, he, Boromir gets caught up in this sort of reliquary revelry thing where he gets um, almost a little too into the 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 mystique of the blade itself and what it represents, and he has a moment there, the 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 blade that cut the ring from Sauron's hand, where he's uh, almost in that space of childlike wonder about, you know, the act itself and the object and what it represents. But of course, that, to, to express sort of enthusiasm for that gives legitimacy to uh, Isildur's line, really. Like his, his, his heirs claim to the throne all the way down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To, to give too much visible enthusiasm for the mystique of that object is is almost counter to his own political process. You know, if, if his father, the steward of Gondor is, you know, the, the rightful ruler at that point in time, he kind of can't in any way, shape or form legitimize a thing. I, I wonder less if he's testing specifically for a reaction from Aragorn and more gets caught up in it and then is embarrassed to, uh, not not betray his own family line, but 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 to to almost a smaller degree, be caught vulnerable. Be, it, it, it's yeah. a vulnerable space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I that's definitely, less why he runs off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely, I, I definitely agree with like the feeling embarrassed at like getting caught up in this whole thing. Yeah, but I I still. I don't know the whole framing of it because he keeps looking at Aragorn. Feels to me like he's looking for a reaction specifically. Right. Right. I, and, I just I feel like he he doesn't go to that well until until the cut and no more than a broken heirloom. I feel like the, the mm-hmm. there's a different goal before that moment, and then the rest is just him saving yeah. face, tr- attempting yeah. to. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's Definitely. oh, it's one of those things that like hurts, it, where you can tell when he hears it hit the ground that he wants to go fix it. And pick but, it up, yeah. And pick he it tosses. up, yeah. But then he just—it's a greater cost away. to him, yeah. That he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man. I don't, I don't feel things. <laughs> I'm out, I'm out. <laughs> this all—I yeah. think that this all gets colored for me mm-hmm. by the like the deeper knowledge of Boromir's real failing, which right. is that in a way he craves power so that he fits the mold that his father's already put him in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that he yeah. feels worthy of what his father already sees him as. I like that. Yeah. It, it definitely that it is it's a moment where he not only is, you know, revering the uh the 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 previous 
act with the sword, but that he feels kingly holding the sword of the king. That he is yeah. there play acting, as it were, as if he's the king, uh, trying it out, trying it on for size. Um, and that also that also uh, kind of tracks with uh, something that me and Cassandra have talked about a little bit on uh, uh, the podcast previously about this idea of like legacies and their kind of place yeah. in this yeah. story. Mm-hmm. And this scene, is, I've never, yeah. I've never really thought about it in that context. But like you were saying, how he's kind of playing at being king, it's almost like, um, like a sword in the stone kind of yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Where he's, you know, trying to wield the sword, but in the end, the sword gets him back. Yeah, and you aren't for me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I just like hands off, bub. Because there is, I mean, it's supposed to be, <laughs> it's supposed to be like a greater mythology for England. So yeah, I like yeah. that little harken back to Arthurian legend. Yeah, absolutely. If, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but, but it's certainly there now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> I mean, I think I would. I would understand the the correlation between like Narsil and and Anduril with Excalibur. Yeah, sure. I mean it's a mystical sword. Like, I mean yeah. it's not it's not necessarily Magic, magical, but it, um, it has history and because there aren't really like other than the swords that glow. Yeah, and there's not really like magical swords mm-hmm. in yeah. these stories. Just swords uh, made the closest by magical thing we means. Get, yeah. Yeah, but they don't themselves have like inherent magical power, except that some of these swords, because of how they were made, can affect uh, magical beings like the Nazgul. Exactly. Yeah. That the or how glam or they'll glow when orcs are nearby. Yeah. And there's there's also other other little things about like that they they don't rust. You know, they don't lose their sharpness over time. You know, bright gleaming blades under all those sort of things. But for the most part, but no one has like a flaming sword. Right. Nobody has a a sword that like you swing it and then the mountain cleaves in half. It's they're just tools. Um, but they but they have all that the the weight of association with them. Um, and they are all exceptionally well crafted amazingly well crafted i i love i love the swords in this film i i have a bit of a, a an obsession with uh craftsmanship specifically relating to these sort of things because one of my other hats that i wear when i'm not podcast guest voice actor uh person is that i i have worked as a sword designer for a couple different um uh, custom sword makers here in the u.s and uh, the design work in this That's film. That's so cool. Thank you. Uh, the, the design work with the swords <laughs> in this film is um, was like the benchmark that got me interested in it at all. Um, and uh, this this sword specifically, swords in general as objects in, throughout um, all of uh, most recorded English history, you know, all the way back to Beowulf, are um, are very complex uh, symbols. There's there's a bit I actually have it pulled up. Uh, from my my favorite swordsmith Peter Johnson that talks about the fundamental power and, uh, and fascination associated with a sword and his his quote starts with a sword is a symbol of many things that the complexity of those associations adds to its symbolic power when you handle a well-made sword it's difficult not to be affected by this a sword represents chivalrous ideals but it's also the weapon with which warriors slew the innocents it's a significant symbol for the continual strife for mastery, for good, and for bad. It's a sign both of triumph and defeat. It's a tool whose influence can make a man a hero or a mindless destroyer. It takes knowledge to make a sword, and it takes experience to know how to wield it, but it has often served powers that are motivated only by prejudice and ignorance. For a modern man, it might represent a longing back to ages long past, which are believed to have been easier to understand and grasp. Still, 
If a sword is not, first of all, made to be a fully functional weapon, it is a pitifully foolish thing that cannot carry any symbolic power. A sword must not fail in its practical use. A badly made sword is a disappointing thing since sloppy, thoughtless, and careless craftsmanship belies the very source of its intrinsic power. The purpose wow. of the shape, yeah, right. The purpose of the shape and dimensions <laughs> of a sword is to ensure the wielder control of the thin line of its edge across which it ceases to exist. So, wow. his whole philosophy, Dang. he's yeah. I mean, <laughs> very so that's my my big like uh, uh, bring over long block quote for today. Uh, that is uh, P- Peter Johnson talking about that design work as it pertains to a weapon, specifically a weapon that has this much. Uh, knowledge and symbolism associated with it is what allows that symbolism to land properly. If you have an, an ugly or clumsy looking sword, it won't work as well because a sword is one of those few weapons that has no other um, use beyond warfare. You know, you right. can have a knife or a, a by knife, even medi- medieval times that you use for eating and cooking that you might also use for, you know, for defense or warfare. An axe can also be used uh, as a wood chopping implement. But a sword, a sword is only for that moment where you pick it up to defend some sort of ideal and fight with it. So mm-hmm. for, for me, right. that a sword has one purpose to kill a man. Right. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And and this this sword in particular is a fascinating one. And like we discussed earlier, this was a design that John Howe worked on for a while, and it was not his first um, crack at this sword. He had been, um, when they talked to him about the design of the, the uh, main few swords in the movies, he wanted to move away from the description of Tolkien, which is he usually describes the swords in the books as single-handed swords that you would you would carry a shield in the other hand and that this is a sort of more 13th century 14th century approach to uh medieval weaponry which is that you're you have that sword and you have that shield right um yeah and and this is a hand and a half sword this is a hand and a half sword this is very much a a long sword where if you're holding this sword you, you don't have a shield in the other hand and this this sword specifically and kind of the three main swords uh in this film i guess the fourth main sword is sting obviously but the three main swords in this film are all structured uh physically as late medieval long swords hand and a half swords where uh you can wield it with one hand but it's long enough to have two so those those three main ones being glamdring wielded by um by gandalf narsil which we just see briefly here and strider's ranger sword that he carries through most of the film those three John wanted to to talk about affecting the way that they would wield them on screen because you only have the sword in your hand if you're fighting with late medieval um, effect books and, and and things like that. So this sword, this uh, particular sword, is a very Germanic, mid to late 15th century type of sword that um, would not be used... It, it, could, it could be used against plate armor, but it, it's, it could also be used against... Uh, uh, less armored uh, assailants. It's it's a type of sword that represents the last time a sword was a battlefield weapon. Because once you reach the end of the 15th century, basically, uh, swords are no longer primarily a battlefield weapon. Their, uh, their first function is uh, statesmen or uh, worn about town. Because once you get past the, the Germanic longsword like this one, you have complex hilted Swiss sabers and rapiers and things that are carried while you're going about your daily business as a civilian. 
and then secondarily can right. be weapons of wars. But this is the last time that the sword was a war weapon, and I think it's a it's a beautiful version uh, to bring into this sort of timeless uh, uh, mysticism. Whereas we just heard Elrond say yesterday that this is a three thousand year old object, and yet the right. um, the type of weaponry, the type of uh, of warfare that they wage has not changed since that moment. That right in Middle Earth, at least in uh, whatever the Third Age we're in, I think uh, we are yes. almost in this um, this timeless space of that last moment before industrialization really takes off. And so I think instead of leaning the way that Tolkien often did in the physical descriptions of the swords as a, a single-handed sword and buckler I thirty three type sword, that we move to this last regal. Um, thing is beautiful. I I I love it. And this one, it essentially, is uh, um, it's a fantasy sword. Obviously, it's not um, a perfect one to one correlation with any main blade. But what what John did with it was that he wanted it to be useful in a certain way. And so the the type of uh, hand and a half sword that this is would be used on the battlefield. But the other thing it was mainly used for was uh, these things called judicial duels, which I also think is a very um, noble mystical idea that if you uh you hear about it in like game of thrones these days the idea of trial by combat that like you might yeah. be judged by fighting someone to the death in an arena uh, in a sort of closed area and in that sort of scenario you would only have the sword and you would not have a shield and the other person would not have any armor and it was just about uh dealing out justice and uh mm -hmm. That, so that's why they have the, the broader base for cutting unarmored appoint, uh, opponents. And then the stronger tip, the sort of thin uh, line that it, that it reaches at the end is for fighting against plate armor, that sort of thing. Uh, I'm yeah, sorry for this, this is long regression. Stark contrast. But this is, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, so this uh, is in stark contrast to the design of Boromir's sword, Boromir's which is a more sword. traditional, like one-handed, wide-bladed Exactly. which they've they've put a, a long scent stopper pommel on it so he could and occasionally he does grab it with two hands but it is very much an an older style that the the different um you've i'm sure you've touched on this already but like the different uh cultures in middle earth as seen in these movies are are keyed into specific uh centuries that like the rohirrim and the writers of rohan that we'll see in the two towers are much more viking era sort of uh a uh, take and boromir mm -hmm. in you know the um gondor is a slightly more uh a mid medieval uh type of thing but this the ranger sword and this weapon itself are late medieval almost m mythical uh, uh, type of things, and the 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 thing in the design that I I think stands out a lot is this unique pommel that it has. the the back of the sword, the end of it, that has that long metal section that flares out into this almost um, it's like an arch, an archway. Uh, yeah. There there are uh, flared pommels like that in uh, late fifteenth century Germanic swords and some Venetian swords uh, from around the same time period, but it's usually a, a short pommel. This is so long, it takes up so much of the grip, and it almost becomes an, an architectural element. It's like um, two columns in a, um, a cathedral merging together into something like that, and in the very center of it, there is a hollow space, uh, which was a design that uh, John came to fairly late in the game. He did two or three variations on it, showed them to Peter and Peter said, they're good, but maybe something else. And he sat with it for a while. <laughs> and then he, um, 
because they're they're fine weapons, and those were actually later reused for the um, the ring wraith weapons. You'll see because they are former kings of men that um, right. his original designs for Narsil were reused for the ring wraith weapons. But this this circ- this um, inset pommel, this open space there, was uh, the unique thing that he finally landed on and said, "Yes, this is this is the one that we want to do." And it was a it was an, a, a tricky thing to do because that's a very 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 hard uh type of hilt to make because essentially you're giving up well it has the, to be weighted properly still right 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 despite yes. the hole in the bottom of the pommel despite the hole in the bottom of the pommel and the fact that normally you would run the tang which is the integral part of the blade uh that sits within the handle you would run that all the yeah. way through the hilt to the uh, very to back the where the you would rivet bottom. it on yeah so you're you're giving yeah. up the actual construction for a um, a design cue, and and he felt very strongly that this was unique and striking enough that it was worth having to uh, having to come up with a whole new approach to assembling the sword. Which yeah, is, John Howe talks yeah. about that in the the design the some of the uh, the uh, the appendices when they talk about designing the weapons. He talks exactly. about how it actually robs the sword of some of its real function, like structural integrity. Function. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes it a weaker blade to have this hole. But it's pretty. But it but is pretty. pretty. <laughs> and the cross guard matches. The cross guards also have the holes. Yeah, in the I end. never yeah. noticed that the 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 that top part of the is that the cross guard. The, yeah, cross, the cross guard. guard. The the two so the, pillars there. Yeah. The knot the knot blade part that is the hilt like the, hilt, the umbrella. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah the hilt is from the cross guard to the pommel. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. there's like okay. uh, certain sections within there, and the and what I, what I love about that is the um they have the long pommel there leading into the grip, and then the foregrip. They actually kind of do a, a old medieval, uh, late medieval thing there where the foregrip has these, um, what they're called risers, these sort of like visible ribs there underneath the leather. There's like, I don't know, six of them mm-hmm. uh, there, which is uh, a much, much older, like 13th century type of grip that you put on something that it's almost like within this lar- larger object is a smaller um, sword handle for a single handed sword so that when the sword is broken, and becomes a smaller object, the 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 grip itself scales with it in a way that it works. It looks just as complete as a full long sword as it does as as that thing because the um, the grip itself is complete. I just think in terms of design and execution and all that, it's it's gorgeous. And the other thing I love about the the weapons in this movie is a, a sort of proprietary thing that Peter Lyon does with his swords is that he loves to do. Uh, these hollow grinds on the flat sections of the of the blade because it makes things pop out more. So basically, on a sword like that, you could have the flat section that's not um, not the fuller, not the divot in the middle. The flat section that actually leads to the edge could just be yeah. a flat uh, wedge going all the way to that, and it would function perfectly well. But it wouldn't catch the light particularly strongly. What um, what Peter would do is he would take a four inch uh, grinding wheel on his linisher, which is like a very big uh, belt sanding uh, arrangement, which would be analogous to a grinding wheel that somebody would have um, in a, just this is an electrical one instead of a foot powered one and make those flat areas concave hollowed out so that you have um, the, the ridges stand out higher and the um, flat areas dip in closer it's it's the same way on on all aspects of the sword, and what it what it does is allow you to have a more rigid blade without w- while taking away a lot of the weight, and mainly it catches a lot more light on camera. So if you look at like 
of an, a, a different type of um, film that doesn't have these very difficult hand grinding hollows on them, you they mm-hmm. might not look as striking if you watch, say, a a Game of Thrones or a <laughs> uh, if you were to watch um, like an old Excalibur film or something like that. Often you don't have those really crisp ridges that come about from Peter saying, "I want to." put a unique mark on this and, and his unique mark that you see in a lot of his uh, stuff on this film and on like the uh, Prince Caspian films that what it did uh, with um, mm-hmm. the uh, Chronicles of Narnia is he puts that hollow grind in there and uh, not to put us on this huge digression, uh, which I think we've been on for quite a while now, but <laughs> I, I, I love, I wanted to relish the opportunity to geek out a bit about how well designed and well crafted this object is and how that allows it to function in the story as well as it does because that yeah. it was so it was so well made that i went down this rabbit hole you know a decade and a half ago that led to me creating <laughs> swords of my own like it, the, if they hadn't have done it that that well i probably never would have would have ended up in that space so it was it was worth it for me to take <laughs> a big long digression and just right. geek the no, heck that's out super, about it. Oh, that's cool. Super fascinating you kind of take swords on film for granted, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because like, you know, we were talking a few weeks ago about Arwen's sword. Like Arwen's sword is yes. pretty, but it's not necessarily super functional. It right. is my favorite sword though. Right. It's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and this, this has a different sort of thematic weight to it, but that it, it just in p- providing contrast between the different, um, uh, uh, cultures that live in middle earth, they're all, they're mm-hmm. all part of that shared effort to build a world that is, um, that is lived in, that feels, feels real. Um, like I said earlier right, in the yeah. week that it extends beyond the edges of the frame and that, that commitment to craftsmanship if it's if the story is not there to support it, obviously we won't fall into that space. But when the story is, if you have craftsmanship that that rises to the level of the of the narrative, you can create these moments where you see something on screen and it speaks to you in the core of who you are. It's it's why we obsess over like the proton packs from Ghostbusters or the the right. pistol from Blade Runner. That sometimes when all of the the factors align there's this extra magic that happens and we let those objects stand in for the story itself, the film itself that I'm sure there's, yeah, and that, that's especially yeah. true of like vehicles too, like the yes, DeLorean absolutely. or the Falcon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To me, this is my DeLorean. This is my, you know, like, this is my, <laughs> that, that thing that I, I saw in the film and it, and it changed my, um, you know, changed my life in a way. I'm, I'm sure there's like dozens of people listening that have, like a a sword, uh, you know, prop or something like that on on their wall because of this movie. You know, like it mm-hmm. it's it speaks to you in a very real, very uh, potent way. And for me, it's that's that's started at all. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. I know that you specifically requested this minute when you asked to come on. Um, but did, what yeah. is another uh, moment or scene that you would like to come back for? Um, um, either in this movie or any of the other two. Oh well, thank you. If you guys are willing to have me back, um, I yeah, think, absolutely. Um, <laughs> another another moment that um, that I'm always thrilled by is um, somebody's probably already called Bormir's death, but um, I would yes. I would yes. uh, I would take uh, the, there's two weeks of that. In fact, <laughs> two weeks of that. Yeah, um, it, it's 
if no one has taken the um the final uh fight with Lurts that Aragorn has, that would be a mm-hmm. huge one. Um, but uh, really, any moment with Aragorn and his sword that's left on. So I'm sure we can okay. email back and forth <laughs> after yeah. this. Um, but because this is this sword, obviously, is the one that has the most symbolic associations in the film. But the sword that I love the most is the one that Vigo carries. So if I could have a his minute with that sword. sword. Yeah, his ranger sword. Well, I mean, my, my favorite little Aragorn moment across the whole trilogy is right after Frodo leaves when he, like, crosses the sword up above his face in, oh, like, almost God. a praying manner. Oh, That's my favorite little Aragorn moment in the whole trilogy. It's amazing. So, it's amazing. It's like the... It's the, like it's like the badass looking at the camera and being like, I'm going to do this yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Yeah, I actually, I spent... 10 years getting my own ranger sword it it took a while to get the one that i have but i finally that um that sword maker that i quoted earlier that i had that very long passage from uh, peter johnson he runs a um he's a lead designer for this company called albion swords um mm-hmm. and he made a uh, a blade for me for my ranger sword that's uh, amazing which is oh yeah my God. Pro- it's probably the nicest thing i own you know it's uh <laughs> Heck of a lot nicer than my car. Um, so I'll send you guys some pictures <laughs> after it later. But yeah, yeah I, I got a custom-made Ranger sword um, through from Peter Johnson at Albion and uh, Christian Fletcher made the um, the fittings and the handle for it. So I did want to shout so out cool. them if you are looking for the best swords around. Peter Johnson and Christian Fletcher. They're 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 two of my favorite. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm very happy with all this background on sword making. Yeah. It's very, it's very yeah. interesting. I'm like a, I'm like kind of a history nerd, and like medieval, medieval history is like my favorite kind of stuff. So oh, that's God, all very cool. I appreciate it. Now yeah. I know, because like thinking about like the the type of sword that you're talking about, mm-hmm. Narsil being, I'm just thinking about how the the falling away of the sword as a battlefield weapon has to do with like gunpowder and the crossbow the and right. the advancement yeah. of plate armor and how bludgeoning weapons became more effective against plate after a while uh-huh. 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 and all this other stuff um and that you, that's all really cool it's the best it's it's as good a window into history as you can find because people are people are fascinated by by objects that are dangerous and for, for me at least like swords are a, a potent like uh symbol for humanity and that they represent both sides of us very well. I think that um, mm-hmm. they represent the human capacity for uh, creativity and uh, for uh, engineering and technology and uh, fine craftsmanship, and that we build things very well and we can refine uh, craft in beautiful ways. And also our ugly, scary, dangerous sides, where it's it's uh, just a thing that kills people. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. So like as as a as a symbol, they just have so much going for them already. But they're right. they're at a, it's a almost safe... like they have two sides. Hey, yeah, it's all, hey, almost like there's a double edge or something. I don't know on these on these swords. What gets a sword without two edges? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you guys for letting me geek out about about that. That was yeah, um, absolutely. That was awesome. Very, very very yeah. meaningful to me <laughs> i'm uh, i'm always interested in, in listening to other people be passionate about mm. something that i love so yeah <laughs> well that's that's why you have this podcast i presume <laughs> right. so you can find us on duelinggenre.com you can also find many more uh minute analyzing podcasts on moviesbyminutes.com as always a special thanks to our patreon associate producer Leap, leaper 182 uh thank you zach for joining us all week yeah, Absolutely. We Thanks fun. for having me. 
Yeah, me too. <laughs> and, he, and if you want to listen to Zach Moore, you should also check out Geek by Night, where he's the voice of Joel yeah. Vickers. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, who is a great character, and it's a fantastic voice. Oh, thank so. you so much. <laughs> Probably slightly less of a nerd than me, I'd assume. <laughs> well, maybe not. Who knows? Maybe not. Maybe Joel's got secret, you know, he's got layers, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, a lot of fun. And thank you for Cassandra for writing on that show and making it possible. Thanks for oh, having thanks. me, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And I hope everyone has a great weekend. Bye. Bye.